Last week we looked at the um, title, Son of Man, and I was uh, trying to answer this question. It was a Christmas um, sermon I was planning well before Christmas and ended up preaching it last week. Um, Trying to answer this question, who did Jesus claim to be? Uh, there's another title that I wanted to look at this morning, and um, it's a title I don't think uh, um, I've ever heard a sermon preached on, but that's the title, Son of David. Son of David. And here's the reason why I wanted to cover the title, Son of David, is because we just had really an ugly election. And there's so much on uh, the presidency and what's going on in our country and the government. The title, Son of David really points to, more than anything, Jesus as king, and what type of king he'll be. And so I'm going to look at uh, the type of king Jesus is and going to be. I want to look at the title, Son of David. And so why this psalm, then, if we're going to look at this title, Son of David? Well, let me just give you the context of this psalm. If you look at the top of the heading, it says, Of Solomon. This could be of Solomon, or uh, meaning that Solomon's the author, or for Solomon, meaning it was written for Solomon. Either way, Psalm 72 is a, an accessory prayer by the people on behalf of their newly inst- installed king and petition to God that he reign, that his reign would be marked by divine favor and holiness. It's, it's written, if Solomon even written, he wrote it about himself, and he wrote it in the perspective of the people praying for him as he's installed as king. It's a prayer for Solomon, but ultimately, I believe this psalm points to Jesus. Solomon is a type of Jesus, right? He's literally the son of David, David's physical son, but Jesus is the greater and ultimate son of David that Solomon's life points to. In the psalm, we see five characteristics of Jesus' reign. Jesus will have a just reign. He'll have an internal reign. He'll have a boundless reign, he'll have a compassionate reign, and he'll have a blessed reign as king. So I want to start by looking at a just reign. This is the first point, and we're going to spend most of our time on this one point here, and there's two reasons for that. First, justice and righteousness are the most important virtues of a king. We see this consistently in scripture. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of a godly king. But the second reason I want to spend time on this idea of justice is because our culture has a false understanding of justice. So I want to talk about what true biblical justice is this morning. So look at verse 1. It says this, Give give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The son, again, is a prayer to God petitioning uh, for this king. And and it starts saying, give the king two things. Give this king your justice and your righteousness. This is super important. These two words are connected. Biblical justice goes hand in hand with biblical righteousness. Look at Psalms 72, verse 1 again. I'm going to just read it. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to, your, to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. So important. These words are connected, and we see this throughout Scripture. I can give you example after example, but let me just, just give you a few. Genesis 18, 19 says this. For I have chosen him. It's talking about Abraham. I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness 
and justice. The way of the Lord in this verse is righteousness and justice. And God's people should be marked by both righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice are characteristics of God's rule. Psalms 89.14 says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalms 97.2 says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. That's God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice is what God loves. Psalm 33.5 says he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love of the Lord. Righteousness and justice is what God does. Psalm 103.6 says the Lord, that's Yahweh, works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Jeremiah 9.24 says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Righteousness and justice is what God commands. Amos 5.24 says, But let justice roll down like waters. And I just want to stop there. Just a side note, liberal theologians and social justice warriors love to quote this verse. They love to say God commands justice, but they ignore the rest of the verse. It says this in verse 24, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the biblical worldview, you can't separate justice from righteousness. They're connected. I labor this point because, again, justice is such a popular idea today. The word is everywhere. If you're not paying attention, you'll see it everywhere. But the popular idea of justice today is a false justice. It's a justice divorced from righteousness. Biblically, you can't separate the two. If you separate righteousness from justice, you end up with an unbiblical idea of justice, which is not justice at all. True justice is always in alignment with God's standard of righteousness. In fact, in the Bible, righteousness is often just synonymous with justice. Justice is always in conformity with God's moral standard. Again, why do I labor this? Our culture has redefined the word justice. The social justice movement, and we've talked a lot about this movement, has redefined the word justice. I don't like the title social justice movement because it's not justice. They've redefined the word justice. They have divorced the word justice from righteousness. You'll see a lot of people in society today demanding a just society. You'll see very few demanding a righteous society. You can't separate the two words. So what's this new definition? I think it's important that we examine this. What's this new definition of justice? According to the social justice ideology, justice has more to do with disparities than righteousness. Injustice comes from disparities or differences. Disparities between groups, and that's an important word, groups, not races. Disparity in the social justice movement and what a popular society right now says justice is, disparity equals injustice. Therefore, justice 
is equality of outcome, or what they like to say, equity, or sameness. And I don't say this to be sarcastic, but I think it helps us understand what they mean by justice. It's like a two-year-old's idea of fairness. Again, I don't say that to be flippant or, or um, sarcastic. I just think it gets us the idea of what justice means to our society today. I just want to give a couple examples. I think this is such an important topic right now that we need to look at it. Let me give you an example. First example is this. And uh, I'm pretty sure this is a true example. African Americans comprise less than a fourth of New York City, yet they account for half of all police pedestrian stops. According to the social justice movement, this is an injustice. No matter what the reasoning is, There is a disparity between groups, therefore, an injustice. Let me say this. According to a biblical worldview, this very well could be an injustice. But it all depends on the reasoning for the disparities. If the reason for the disparity is an unrighteous reason, say, racial prejudice, which is evil, then... It's unjust. In a biblical worldview, there's a connection between justice and righteousness. But I want to leave the idea of racism, and I want to remind you, again, the social justice movement is about groups, not races, and that's so important. Just listen, group identity. You don't hear race identity. Groups, not races. So let me give you another example. 80% of software engineers are male, 20% are female. According to the social justice movement, this is an injustice because there is a disparity, an unequal outcome between groups. One group, 80% male. Another group, 20% female. Doesn't matter what the reason is. I want to be clear on that. It doesn't matter the reasoning. It's an injustice because there's a disparity. Let me give you another example. If the state recognizes heterosexual marriage, but not homosexual marriage, according to the social justice movement, there is a disparity, a difference. It's not fair. Therefore, an injustice. One group's marriages are recognized, heterosexual group. Another group's marriages are not recognized, homosexual group. There's a disparity, therefore an injustice. What's not considered here, though? Righteousness. God's moral law. Let me give you one more example, and this is the most disturbing one to me. Abortion is now called reproductive justice. Why? Well, think about it. Why would you call it justice? Think of the new definition of justice. A male and a female can have sexual relations, and there is the disparity of outcome. A female will get pregnant, and a male won't. According to the social justice movement, this is an injustice. And again, it's because there's a disparity or unequal outcomes. Therefore, abortion is just because it brings equity. 
It brings equality of outcome. It's why they're starting to call abortion reproductive justice. It's not a choice anymore. It's justice. But how do we know abortion is not just? Because it's murder. It's evil. Because it breaks the law of God. Because it's unrighteous. Therefore, abortion is an evil, it's an unrighteous act, and therefore it's an unjust act. Again, this is so important, side note, and I know we're getting way off topic from the Psalms that I'm going to exegete here in a second. But I hope, as we look in the light of where we are as a society right now, it just makes Jesus shine so much as the just and righteous king he is. Just a side note. The social justice movement's understanding of justice is fundamentally different than the civil rights movement's understanding of justice. Why do I bring this up? Because we're so sensitive to racism, and we should be. We should be. We don't want to be racist, and we shouldn't as Christians at all. We don't want to be called racist, and we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. We hear that all the time. We don't want to be like many churches of the 60s that should have spoken up and didn't. But the social justice movement is fundamentally different than the civil rights movement. Let me just read from Martin Luther King Jr. to prove it. Famous letter from a Birmingham jail. He saw justice and righteousness as connected. He said this, One may well ask, How can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I agree, I agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Well, how do you know what an unjust law is then? Well, that's the next question he tries to answer. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God, or I would say righteousness. A just law squares with righteousness. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony, this is Martin Luther King Jr., with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal or natural law. In other words, an unjust law, according to Martin Luther King Jr., is a law that is not rooted in biblical righteousness. Fundamentally different movements. We need to understand this as a church. Social justice movement is an unbiblical idea of justice. It's anti-Christian. Just read the literature. It's anti-Bible. It's anti-God. The civil rights movement used the biblical worldview to argue its cause. Fundamentally different movements. Now turn back to Psalm 72, verse 1. This is the prayer of the king. Right? Give the king, your justice, O God, and your righteousness to, to the royal son. Justice and righteousness 
right, are defining characteristics of a good king. It's the main prayer of the psalm that the, the royal son, the son of David, would rule with both justice and righteousness. They go hand in hand. Verse 2, may he judge your people with righteousness and, and your poor with justice. Right? This king doesn't play favorites, in other words. Because true justice and righteousness is not partial. And because of this, verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. The mountains that are talked about here are the greater parts of the kingdom, the rich, the wealthy, the influencers. The hills are the lesser parts, the poor, the outcast. Both will be prosperous under this king's rule. Look at verse 3 again. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. There's a relationship actually throughout all of Scripture between a righteous ruler and prosperity. A just, righteous ruler and prosperity. Right? Prosperity here is actually the word in Hebrew, shalom. It could be translated peace. It's often translated peace, but it more has to do with well-being of every kind. That's why prosperity is a good translation of shalom. Well-being spiritually, morally, socially, and even materially. The point is that a righteous conduct of a, a godly king brings blessing. One commentator said it this way, justice and righteousness is the soil and climate in which peace and prosperity flourishes. The righteous king will bring shalom. And of course, this points to Jesus. Isaiah 9.6, which Zach preached on a few weeks ago, Said for to us a child is born, this is Jesus, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, the word shalom, there will be no end. No end to this kingdom's prosperity when, when Jesus is king. Right? There will be shalom, well-being. Why? Well, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and upon it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Justice and righteousness will bring shalom, peace, well-being, prosperity. Jesus will be a just and righteous ruler his reign will be marked by peace and prosperity. Now look at verse 4, Psalm 72, verse 4. May he defend the cause of the poor, of the people, and give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Verse 5, it says, While the sun endures as, as long as the moon throughout all generations. These are just poetic ways of saying forever. Right? Again, this is a prayer to Solomon, and it's like saying, it's a prayer like saying, Long live the king, but ultimately this points to Jesus, that his reign will be eternal. And that brings us to the second characteristic of Jesus' reign. It's not just a just reign, it's an internal reign. Let me read 
to you a promise, the promise that was given to David about his son. Remember, Solomon's David's son. And God promises David in 2 Samuel seven twelve uh, a promise given to his son and a future son that would be coming. And it says this, when your days are fulfilled, in other words, David, when you die, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up um, your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. Again, this is Solomon who builds a temple for the Lord, a house for the Lord. But again, Solomon's life points to a greater king that will be coming one day, who will come after Solomon. And it says this in verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's an amazing promise when you think about it. Right? There's like one guarantee when it comes to kingdoms. They will all fall. Right? The Assyrians, the Hittites, the Babylonians, ancient Egypt, right? the Persians, the Greeks, the Roman Empire. One guarantee, they'll all fall. And look what it says in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Incredible promise that was given to David, and David understood that this pointed to a future ruler one day that would be established forever. Luke one thirty says this, and an angel said to her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High." And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house, the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus will reign forever. You know what that means? No more elections. (laughs) Look at verse 5. Psalm 72, verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as as the moon throughout all generations. Again, this points to Jesus who will reign forever. Verse 6. May may he be like the rain that falls on the mown, mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. And again, the moon be no more. This is eternity to the moon is no more. Verse 6, it say, May he be like rain that falls on the moon grass. We're blessed to live in California. I know you don't hear that often, um, but we are. In the sense that Israel climate, climate is a lot like California's climate. So we really can relate to some of these poetic words that are talked about in the Psalms and throughout the scriptures. You see this. Israel was rain-dependent, just like California. 
In other words, there was no major river like the Nile in Egypt that that brought water so you can start farming and stuff like that. It, it depended on rain. Very similar climate to to California. Food was dependent on rain, in other words. And when rain came, just like Tehachapi, the hills would turn green. And it's a happy week. <laughs> this godly king would be welcomed, in other words, like life-given rain. And seeing the green hills after it. It goes back to verse 3 again. The one who judges with justice and righteousness will bring prosperity, will bring shalom. Verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity, shalom for the people and the hills in righteousness. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, after such an ugly election, after being so frustrated with our governing officials... You know, I think in a lot of ways we've been blessed. I mean, I know in a lot of ways. I don't think. We've been blessed to live in America and grow up in America. But some of these sayings just don't relate when you, when you talk about how, how evil you know, governors are compared to some of the evil governors that we've seen in the history of mankind. Just with the ugliness that we're starting to see from our government, I just hope it, it, brings, it brings... It's like a you put a diamond on a, a, a black felt to make it shine more. We just see Jesus' reign and how beautiful it truly is and going to be when he comes back. It takes our hope away from this life. It takes our hope to the next. Jesus will rule with justice and righteousness and, and since his rule is eternal, there will be no more elections. He'll just be a perfect, perfect governor and government for eternity. Look at verse 7 again. In, in his day may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. This brings us to our third aspect of Jesus' rule and reign. It's a boundless reign. Look at verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from, from the river to the ends of the earth. The point is, his, his dominion will be boundless. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. Tarshish and all the coastlands. Tarshish is actually present-day Spain, and we, we learned this when we went through uh, uh, the book of Jonah. That's where Jonah was trying to go to just get away from everything, to the ends of the earth. There was nothing on the other side of Tarshish in the ancient world. I mean, you know, there's America, but they didn't know about that. It just, there was nothing, right? This is the ends of the earth. It's a poetic way of saying his rule is over everything, the whole earth. Verse 10, may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Sheba, southern Arabia, it's like Yemen area. Seba is northern Africa. It's a prayer that, that nations and kings would come and worship this one king. Again, this partially was true in Solomon's life. Solomon was a type of Christ and pointed to Christ. In 1 Kings 10, we see the queen of Sheba, so amazed by Solomon's wisdom, come and bring amazing gifts to Solomon. In 1 Kings 
10:23 it says thus king solomon excelled or excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom and the whole earth sought the presence of solomon to hear his wisdom which god had put into his mind every one of them brought his um, presence articles of silver gold garments mure spices horses and and mules so much year by year and the kings would come just to hear Solomon's wisdom. And again, this points to Jesus, that the kings of the earth will one day come and worship Jesus. We see this started with the wise men from the east coming and bringing gifts to Jesus. But look at verse 11, Psalm 72, verse 11. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Again, this points to Jesus. We saw this last week. Let me just remind you, Daniel seven thirteen says this about Jesus. Right, this prediction of this, this son of man that's coming. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and presented before him. And, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Again, in Aramaic, that word serve could be translated worship. That people from all nations would come and worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Look at Psalms. Psalm 72 verse 11 again. It said, May all kings fall down before him and all nations served him. Jesus' reign is marked by justice and righteousness. It will be a blessed reign of shalom, peace, and well-being. It will be an eternal reign, a never-ending one, a boundless reign. Nations and kings from every tribe will come and worship him. But finally, it will be a compassionate reign. The fourth mark of Jesus' reign is that it will be a compassionate reign. Look at verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who here, or who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and, and the needy and, and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their lives and precious is their blood in his sight. This king, in other words, does not serve his own interests, but the interests of others. He hears the call of the needy. He has pity on the weak. He listens to the one who has no help. Look what verse 14 says. He redeems their lives. And precious is their blood in his sight. The helpless, the weak, the needy are precious in this king's sight. The psalm again is a prayer of Solomon. And although Solomon is a great king and son of David and fulfills much of this psalm, he failed to be the compassionate king talked about in verses 12 through 14. Solomon was more concerned about building a great kingdom than taking care of the weak. In fact, in 1 Kings 12, 3, it says this, And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, this is Solomon's son, verse 4, Your father made our yoke heavy. Under Solomon's rule, he gave heavy taxes, heavy workloads. His yoke was heavy. 
Solomon lacked compassion for the weak and the needy. And this is what the people said to his son after Solomon died. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. I want you to hear what Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Unlike Solomon, or his son Rehoboam, or any king of Israel, unlike any ruler who has ever ruled, Jesus tells the weak, the burdened, the needy, those who have no help to come to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We just ask you this morning, if you're here in this room or if you're listening online, don't raise your hand. But how many of you feel like you have a heavy burden? Your souls are distressed, sorrowful, full of guilt, shame, regret, fear, worry, anxiety. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I just want to be clear, right? Because the Bible is very clear. Your heavy burden that you are feeling is because of sin. It may be just the effects of sin on a fallen world. Death, decay, sickness, physical pain. Maybe it's sin of others. Those that have sinned against us or you. Those that hurt you, who are oppressing you in some way. But more than anything, our heavy burdens is because of the sin within our own heart. Romans 3.23 again says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is clear, we all have sinned. We all need the grace of God. We all need to come to Jesus. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, he's king, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That means he's sitting at the right hand of God right now as Lord of Lord and and King of Kings. You will be saved. If you want comfort this morning, confess your sins to God and believe in his Son. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross. We don't have to work for our salvation. He did it for us. We just need to trust in him, believe him, and follow him. Jesus is the compassionate king talked about in Psalms 72. Leads us to our final point. And this is for all those that are in his kingdom. Jesus' reign will be a blessed reign. Look at verse 15. Long may he live. 
May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoke for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and in the tops of the mountain may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Five characteristics of Jesus' reign. A just and righteous reign. An internal reign. A boundless reign. A compassionate reign. And a blessed reign. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I know uh, we keep talking about this last year, Lord, and how difficult it has been in so many different ways. Lord, we, we see our country, Lord, and our culture seem to be coming apart at its foundation. Lord, I, I pray that that does two things for us. One, Lord, it helps, us, or it encourages us to, to seek you and your word and, and to look into words like justice and, and to really, really look to, to see what, what that means according to your word. What is true justice? But I also, Lord, pray that it just aligns our hopes, Lord, for the day where your son will come and establish that justice on this earth. For that day where he will reign on this earth and and we will be in his physical kingdom, Lord, forever. Lord, I pray that our hope is is on that, that we understand that this kingdom, the kingdom of this world, Lord, even though the, the, that you rule over it, Lord, this kingdom is foreign to us. We, we are just passerbyers, Lord. We're sojourners. We belong to a much better kingdom where your son sits on the throne. I pray our hopes are aligned with that. In your son's name, amen.